discover I've put my two icebergs around the wrong way for the maps at either end. So I apologise for that. Um, so today uh, I'm going to talk about two particular icebergs as um, epitomes or uh, classic examples of the, of the icebergs that you experience in the two hemispheres. So in the northern hemisphere I'm going to talk about the Titanic, a very famous and iconic iceberg which still really is relevant today in thinking about ice hazard, which is perhaps increasing as we move into an era <coughs> with more travelling to the Arctic in particular. And I'll look in the Southern Hemisphere at a rather different iceberg, much more recently, but again a typical iceberg which is tens of kilometres in size rather than a few hundred metres. Again, very typical of Antarctic icebergs. Um, and we'll see how that might be relevant um, to a whole range of things as we go on. But one, <coughs> one real important reason for thinking about icebergs at the moment is that they contribute towards uh, changing sea level. So both Greenland and Antarctica are contributing to sea level rise. If you look at the chart at the top there, you see that over the last decade or so, both Greenland and Antarctica are thought to be uh, contributing to increases in sea level. Before then, it was uh, less clear whether they were in balance or not. And half of that contribution to sea level is from the, the glaciers melting and uh, meltwater running um, over land, as the picture at the left shows, but half of it is due to carbon icebergs. And it's that half that we're going to look at today try and understand better. So as I've said, we're going to, to look in the northern hemisphere at the iceberg that sank the Titanic and look at the iceberg in the southern hemisphere known as B31, which when it carved was the size of the island of Singapore, so some 700 uh, square kilometres in area, and it's still intact <coughs> as we see. So let's start with the, the Titanic. Most of you will be familiar with the, the basic story. So the Titanic collided with an iceberg on the 14th of April in 1912, around about 42 degrees north, so actually quite a long way south. 42 degrees north is well south of any part of the United <coughs> Kingdom. It took uh, two and a half hours for it to sink and sank in the early hours of the, the morning of the, the 15th. While 700 people rescued, over 1,500 uh, died in the collision. So it's, it caused really enormous changes to the way iceberg hazard was assessed. And we'll come back <coughs> to that um, later. But what I'm going to do is look at a few factors of the Titanic uh, disaster. So why did the ship sink? It was famously unsinkable. Should there have been ice there in the first place? Where did the iceberg come <coughs> from that actually uh, collided with the ice uh, with the Titanic? And then I'll finish the Titanic section looking at um, iceberg risk in the North Atlantic today. So, why did the ship sink? Well, firstly, the weather was actually very good at the time. Um, those of you near the front. Hopefully you'll be able to see the black lines here are a surface pressure chart. And basically the X on here marks where the Titanic was, um, south, south of Newfoundland. 
And it's in the middle of a high-pressure ridge, which actually extends all the way across the Atlantic. And that ridge had been there for some time. So it was in a situation where the weather was calm, conditions were clear, and in fact very cold um, at the time. Ice alerts had been given, so the Titanic knew that there was ice in the area, so that they had um, warning. However, the ship was travelling at full speed, which was really because the captain was trying to cross the Atlantic in record time on his maiden cruise. So while there were positive aspects um, about the situation, you would have thought you should have been able to see an iceberg. They were travelling fast. <coughs> so on that <coughs> evening, around about 11 o'clock, um, the lookouts on board the Titanic sighted an iceberg dead ahead. They immediately contacted the bridge and the ship turned uh, to starboard to try and avoid it. But the ship was moving very fast because it was moving at top speed. And so it wasn't able to move out of the way. And particularly because the, the ice um, and oops, uh, she's stopped at this point. Because the ice actually um, protruded from the surface, and the top picture there is thought to be the iceberg that sank the Titanic. It's a photograph from one of the rescue ships on the following day. And you can see a, a line across the iceberg, which is thought to uh, be a red paint streak. It's recorded as that at the time. Um, there are a couple of other images of icebergs on that day, uh, which might have been requisite one. But notice that the iceberg has a very uneven shape. There are pieces well below the uh, water surface. And it's one of those submerged spars which struck the, um, the Titanic and led to the flooding of six compartments in the ship. <coughs> now, there was, was a network of watertight doors which should have meant that any uh, collision and uh, buckling of the hull was contained because uh, some chambers would fill up but not enough uh, to, to make the ship sink. But unfortunately, it was designed so that you could have four compartments um, full of water and still float. But unfortunately, on this occasion, there were six. Recently, there's been some engineering work um, looking at material brought back from the Titanic on the sea floor, which um, casts some doubt on the quality of some of the rivets that were used in the uh, welding putting together the plates on the side of the ship. So there's some possibility that because some <coughs> of the rivets were not um, as good quality as others, combined with the fast speed and uh, the sparse version of the water, that um, there was a greater buckling than you might otherwise have expected. Should there have been ice there in the first place? Well, the sea ice limit at the moment uh, uh, currently, on um, average in April, is given by the dotted line there. So it goes from Newfoundland um, up through into the Labrador Sea and uh, across to southern Greenland. In 1912, the sea ice limit is marked by the dash line and was much further south. So sea ice was extending further south, and the iceberg limit in that year uh, is given by the solid white line. So there was ice much further south than you would normally get in an April in that particular year. 
There were also more icebergs in that April than normal. Uh, the picture at the top shows you the typical number of icebergs in red uh, in each month of the year as you go across from January to December. And you see there's a, a spring, early, summer peak. In 1912, the peak was actually in April rather than in um, May and June. And the largest <coughs> number were recorded in April. So there were a lot of icebergs around at the time. Mostly because the winds around that high pressure system were pushing cold air and the sea ice and the icebergs um, southwards in the Labrador current towards the Titanic position. However, when you look at the longer term record, and we have data on the number of icebergs <coughs> in this area going back to uh, 1900, while the number of icebergs in 1912 was high, over a thousand, just over a thousand were observed crossing the line at 48 degrees north there, the red line, <coughs> which is level with St. John's and Newfoundland. There. So quite a lot of icebergs, but there have been a number of years in that last 115 years when there have been more icebergs, and even out to uh, around about 2300 or so, so over almost two and a half times. So a lot of icebergs earlier in the year than normal, but not unprecedented. So where did the iceberg come from? Well, icebergs in the Labrador Current coming down um, off Newfoundland could have come from a wide range of places. They get entrained basically in the ocean current, and it's the ocean current which carries them uh, <coughs> along. And the basic currents in this area are a, a flow down the East Greenland current, and then that flows up into around West Greenland into Baffin Bay, and then back along uh, the coast of Baffin Island and Labrador. But there's also some uh, additional currents enabling a shortcut, if you like, across from one side of the Labrador Sea to the other. So both off Cape Farewell at the southern tip of Greenland, and also further north at the narrowing between Baffin Island and uh, Greenland called Davis Strait, you can get icebergs coming across in both of those places, show, so not uh, so allowing a short circuit of that whole journey. There's still a, a range of places where the iceberg could come from. So one of the things um, that I'm interested in is modeling icebergs for all sorts of reasons, and this was one of them, to try and find out where they, they uh, come from, and why you see so many numbers in different years. And so we have an iceberg model, which is basically putting iceberg inside a climate model and running the climate model through time with its icebergs in and allowing the icebergs to move around subject to the winds and the, uh, the ocean currents within the climate model. We've released icebergs from the range of places around Greenland and the Canadian archipelago, and in fact, um, further afield in Svalbard and the Russian islands, where they uh, also carve. And we can follow the icebergs along as they melt. So they're moved and they melt um, as they progress. There's all sorts of detail there, but you don't really need to know that. Um, you can see we have a range of icebergs. <coughs> The crosses and red um, squares show places, uh, 
but circles show places where we put icebergs into our model. And note that on the West Greenland coast, you have a clustering of fjords releasing icebergs into the ocean around uh, the south. But then there's quite a long gap going up West Greenland until you get to some very big um, input regions and then a lot at northern end of Baffin Bay. So if you like, there's some very uh, different places, not a <coughs> continuous distribution um, from there is most likely to contribute icebergs into that flow. <coughs> so we run our model from um, the late 19th century up to uh, present day and looked at all the icebergs that the model produces which reach the Titanic location around April 1912, <coughs> according to the winds and currents of that time. And this shows uh, the icebergs reaching that area and they're, very, um, they're basically moving south but uh, moving all sorts of various perturbations to that track. But except with one iceberg which has come from further north uh, in Baffin Bay, all of the icebergs that the model wanted to produce in 1912 that could reach the Titanic site at the right time all come from a fjord in southwest Greenland. So we think there's a very high probability that the iceberg that hit the Titanic actually derived from southwest Greenland and not perhaps from um, the, the large glaciers further north, uh, which sometimes have been thought to provide a lot of the flux coming down the Labrador coast. So the, we saw that there are a lot of icebergs. There was this uh, great disaster. It, it was actually um, the end of a few decades where every year there were quite a lot of uh, iceberg collisions with ships, um, up into the, the tens to the hundreds or so. So it was actually a real risk. People were always dying as, uh, in such great numbers, but there were fatalities in many years of the last part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th. So following the Titanic disaster, there was a conference uh, in London in November 1913, the International Conference on Safety of Life at Sea, which was trying to address how to, to, to solve this problem, how to have a warning system to prevent such things happening in the future. And as a result of that, a body called the International Ice Patrol was set up. Uh, the United States led it, and they still lead it, and the funding for it uh, comes from half a dozen nations, and it still comes from um, half a dozen nations around the North Atlantic. The idea of the International Ice Patrol, which still exists, and in fact, um, you'll see some uh, interesting data a bit later, they're trying to observe the number of icebergs and the sea ice so that they can produce warnings. But they also are looking at the science of how the icebergs interact with the ocean. Because the more you know about that, the better you can be at predicting <coughs> how the icebergs will move and therefore how the risk will change over time. So that component was there right from the start, the very first um, year. In 1914 uh, <coughs> 1915, they had um, some cruises which looked at that. There's a record there of, uh, if you like, the, um, the integral of all their observations. 
Um, this is the number I48N there is the number of icebergs crossing that 48 degrees north line um, each year. And you see it's very variable. It can go from zero to a thousand from one year to the next. Um, but in recent decades, there's been an increase in the number on average that have tended to cross uh, that line. So there's been a distinct change probably associated with the change in sea level contribution from Greenland. So this is still running, um, suspended during the war for a short period, although observations were still made by the um, US Navy at the time. There's a range of monitoring. The background pictures here show, show the various uh, techniques that are used. Um, so in the early decades, they had ice patrol vessels which went out on regular um, journeys across the Labrador Sea. Since the Second World War, they've used aircraft of one type or another, and that's um, um, the primary patrol aircraft they use today, which actually comes from a base in South Carolina. They use radar um, as well, both from the, sh from the <coughs> planes, but also from uh, land-based stations. And they use modeling similar to the sort of modeling I was talking about try and predict iceberg motion over short times, not over a year, but over um, a few days. And they're beginning to also use satellite imagery. Uh, it's not a good place for visual satellite imagery up here because there are lots of clouds, but you can use what's called synthetic aperture radar, which um, relies on a satellite sending microwaves to the surface and looking at the reflection of the energy coming back detect what sort of surface the microwaves intersecting with. You get lots of reflection from ice, typically. The synthetic aperture radar is, uh, is a good tool, but we're only just at the stage of being able to begin to think about automatically detecting icebergs from the images. So have we seen icebergs at the Titanic lo location in recently? In the last decade, there were two occasions when on the 14th of April, there was an iceberg near the Titanic site. So in 2009, uh, the Titanic site's given by the Blue Crosses. Uh, you can see their iceberg extending down near it, and again in 2014. So the risk is still very much there. That's a long way south. We're thinking about uh, just under 42 degrees north. It's well in the main shipping lines between um, Western Europe and, and North America. So it's still happening on a regular basis. So 1912 was not unusual. This morning I downloaded today's uh, iceberg chart just to give you a feeling for how this um, continues because it's March, and if you remember the chart in March, the uh, number of icebergs is still less than it will be later in the season. Um, but even so, there are icebergs coming down almost 45 degrees north um, already. Um, the numbers there are the number of icebergs in a one degree square, um, and the iceberg limit is given by the solid line. So it's still a risk. The need for the monitoring really still needs to go on. And there are still collisions um, between ships and icebergs. 
One of the most famous recent ones of those was uh, with a cruise ship in the South Atlantic, um, in the Weddell Sea. And that really links my two talks. This risk we think of very much the Northern Hemisphere risk, but the most recent major uh, shipping loss is in the South. So it's near the Antarctic Peninsula, where it's on, on the there. So we'll switch now from thinking about the um, North Atlantic and iceberg risk to thinking about the South Atlantic and the very different sorts of icebergs that you see there. And I'm going to focus in West Antarctica where the uh, red square and the blue circle are. Uh, it's a glacier called Pine Island Glacier. The red areas on this map show where the uh, flow of ice is greatest. And so they're the places where the reds intersect with the sea where you're going to get maximum carbon. And Pine Island Glacier is, is uh, one of them. We'll see some reasons why it's very interesting so here's a picture um, from a few days before the iceberg carved the scale there 30 kilometers and if you look carefully um, you can see that see that so um, there is actually oops, around there where the arrow is you can see a crack going across the iceberg. And that had been there for um, uh, two years, gradually getting wider and extending across uh, the whole of the, um, the glacier, across the whole of the, the ice shelf. And at this stage, in late uh, November, late October, it had got uh, all the way across. And then a few days later, it actually um, broke free. What I'm going to do now is, is just show you the um, movement of the iceberg once that happens.